0: Today, if you're on Facebook live with us this morning, thanks for joining us. I want to let you know that there's another place where you can be watching this as well, another unique platform which we're starting today, which is Anthem Church uh, Online, and it's at our website. So you go to anthemchurch.life and then click Church Online, you will be able to chat with people at Anthem. You'll be able to you know, look at the Bible while you're looking at service. And so there's a few other features on there that I'd love for you to check out and see what you think and chat with one of our hosts there or anybody that you see that you know uh, at anthemchurch.life online. So click on that and check that out this morning. Um, this morning, we want to continue looking at the power of the Scriptures in our lives. And many of us grew up with a sort of a child-sized version of the Bible and the Scriptures. And uh, for some of us, we've kind of kept it that way. We've, uh, we've, we've kept the stories of Noah's Ark and, and David and Goliath and uh, uh, you know Daniel and the Lion's Den, but sometimes our uh, our view of the Bible and our view of the Scriptures does not mature as we get older, even though our view of the world does. In fact, sometimes it stays a little bit like this.
1: Um, it looks like a normal page? book. But. It looks like a normal book, but it's not. Why not? Because it has a lot of Bible stories because it has a lot of Bible stories because it has a lot of Bible stories. Wow because there's all the stories in there yeah yeah all the Jesus stories you can't, uh-huh. like, can't finish and all like and you can't finish them before nap time And there's a little there's just one bookmark in it. I think a couple days ago I finished the Bible before bedtime. The whole entire Bible. The story is David, 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 and Goliath. He's a kid, and he has a slingshot, and, and he slings it, it, and and the rag uh, hits Goliath's head. He went to the um lake, he and he picked up the six Ten stones. we <laughs> <No>. get <laughs> five stones. Yeah. And, and, and this was in his rock pile. How how tall was Goliath? Sixty-one. Sixty-one what? He Sixty-one seven. Like this big, bigger than this whole room. Like like he's he really, can reach the ceiling when he's only this wide. Then he rolled his slingshot around. Then it hit Goliath. Or ahead he, he fell down and on the on the hard rock and then he started to bleed and he was dead no he no he didn't bleed at all he just got a he just got maybe he just got hurt a little bit or but maybe he didn't he's... bleed but he just did it was just, he just he's dead and then he got back alive. No, that's didn't. R- that, that's wrong. It didn't hurt Goliath. Goliath is this big, and the rock is only that big. I know, but how do I make him dead if it's so small and he's bigger? How do I make him dead? He's not really dead. He's just pretending. He just wants David to win because he's a little boy.
0: I love it. You see, for many of us, our view of the world uh, expanded and matured as we got older, but our view of the Scriptures stayed childlike, and it probably only has taken somebody in our lives or in our our past or our history to poke a little bit of fun at some of the things that we believe, and sometimes our view of the Bible can can topple like a house of cards. And so I really believe it's important that we know where the scriptures that we believe that make up God's word to us came from, how they got to us before we we believe that they can have an impact in our lives. Is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? That's something that we uh we we spent a bit of time asking last week. And this week we just want to uh, uh ask. I just want to ask this question: as we take a thirty thousand foot view, do we delight in God's word or do we neglect it? uh, I've been reading a a passage of scripture in Psalm 119, verse 16, and King David wrote Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And King David said this about the scriptures, and he would have been talking about the, the first five books of the Bible. He said, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Delight or neglect? Do we delight in God's word or do we neglect God's word? And You and I know that we were all on some kind of scale between those two extremes of whether we delight in God's Word like David did or whether we neglect it. I know that for myself and my wife, when we have plants in the house, um, it, it's likely that those plants are going to die. Because as much as we might have great intentions to water them regularly, that daily commitment of taking care of plants uh, regularly and nourishing them and feeding them uh, is, is likely not going to go so well. And so we don't tend to have a lot of plants that are supposed to be nourished by us because they'll die early. They'll, they'll wither really quickly. And it's the same with that commitment to God's Word, I believe. If we don't nourish uh, uh, our decision to read and to engage with God's Word regularly, it's something that will be neglected. It's something that will wither in our lives. So today I want us to, to uh, recapture and uh, recapture that, that curiosity and fascination for God's Word and for engaging in the Bible. One of the, the questions that we used to ask at a church I was at in Michigan for a long time is this, what is your right now scripture? What is the scripture that's impacting your life today? Because as much as there could be uh, scriptures that have impacted our lives in the past and have brought changes that have kind of brought us to where we are, um, we're only delighting in God's Word if something about it is impacting us today. I've been reading through the book of James this last week and honestly there's there's pieces of practical wisdom right there that make so much sense to daily life that we, we wouldn't even believe sometimes that stuff's in the Bible, but it's just the most practical, day-to-day wisdom that comes right out of the truth of God's word. Now, to get us thinking a little bit more about where the Bible came from and its value and its uh, validity and reliability over the years, we want to engage again the talents and the wisdom of our good friend, Abdu Murray. And Abdu is a person who spent most of his life, his younger years as a Muslim uh, and a Uh, studied the Quran, but over a period of time, over a period of about nine years, he went on a quest, a personal quest for truth, and he found it in the person and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, we're going to just watch a little bit of how Abdu would uh, introduce the theme of the power of the Scriptures.
2: I think many people think that the Bible was a sort of like thing that just fell out of the sky like a meteor and it landed perfectly intact and with all the things that already had said forgetting that there was a tradition of old and New testaments that there were people who were interpreting this for hundreds of years and that God had used certain people in terms of their personalities and various things to write down his word that was actually contextually driven I mean when you look at Paul's letters for example Paul wrote his letters to the church at Colossae and Thessalonica and different places, because issues were happening there that were unique to that particular community, but also have broader applicability to the community as a whole. So it didn't just fall out of the sky. Paul had a need at that particular moment to address something, but I think God in his providence not only addressed something specific to that community, but broader to the Christian community as a whole. But just a couple of examples of how that works. So I think oftentimes when we think of the Bible in terms of its history, we have to understand it was developed over time, 40 authors, three continents, three different languages. I mean, that's amazing that it even has a cohesive story at all, let alone that it applies to our lives today. So we have to think about how it came to be. I think when you start with the oldest books of the Bible from the book of Job to the five books of Moses and all these things, it begins to tell the history and the story. But it tells the story infused not only with the history of what happened to the certain people, but also theological truths and law and all these things. So people got together and said, these are the traditions. We know these things came from these people who our ancestors said spoke to God. And there was reliability tests to find out what in fact are the books. How can we know that those are the originals? Um, That was true of the Old Testament. It was true of the New Testament as well. As the church and the disciples of the disciples, Um, You have John, um, uh, Peter, um, uh, Matthew, and all these guys who were recording the words of Jesus. As their disciples transmitted that same thing going on, and then their disciples also transmitted that same stuff, the church community began to grow and say, What are the books? What are the authentic words of Jesus and Paul and our masters? And that tradition was intact. Many of them memorized this stuff. It was a very common practice to memorize entire books of the Bible. Today, that's foreign to us because our little machines that have more computing power than the entire rocket that went to the moon the first time that we put in our pockets, that memorizes things for us. We've lost this art. That is not how it was in the old, uh, in the old days. In the old days, you had to memorize entire books of the Bible. Um, So the idea that it would get lost or forgotten over time was just something that wasn't even thinkable back then. So we have this tradition and this history built up um, about how we got the Bible. They decided these are the books that we know came from those who walked with Jesus and they recorded Jesus' words. That's one thing about the history. But now the question becomes, well, how does it relate to my life? If we're talking about something that was written 2,000 or 3,500 years ago, How in the world does this apply to what it means to be a dad today or what it means to um, uh, interact with people on a daily basis or uh, identity issues we have today? And I'll tell you this, the more I study the Bible, the more I look at it, the more I'm convinced it's a timeless book that applies to almost every situation.
0: I love it when uh, Abdu talks about the old days in that video. You know, when my kids were little and they would talk about the old days, they were talking about 1997. Uh, so it's just that doesn't seem like the old days to me. But he's just looking back uh, in this video at the times when people would memorize enormous chunks of scripture and then pass it down through generations. You know, the Bible makes some pretty massive claims about itself. And so, you know, if some, if something, we've often talked about the way, the claims that Jesus made about himself, about him being the way, the truth, and the life, and him being the only way to the Father. That's a bold claim. And you know, the Bible makes strong claims about itself as well. So I think it's important to know what those claims about the Bible says about itself are. So uh, Paul, one of the apostles that Abdu just mentioned uh, in that video just then, talked to one of his protégés, a, a young man named Timothy, and in a letter that he wrote to him, he said, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture, and Paul was talking then about the Old Testament, all of the Scripture is the, comes out of the breath of God the very breath of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can you imagine uh, the, the claim that the Bible is making about itself to say that every word of Scripture comes from the very breath of God? I think if we if we truly understood that and we got that in, into our heart more our, our reverence and our commitment to the scriptures would would just go up exponentially another verse in the new testament uh, the writer to the, the letter to the hebrew church uh, says this the word of the lord the word of god is alive and active can you imagine that the word of god is alive and active it's sharper than any double edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Do, do we believe today that God's word is that has lasted for thousands of years? That we still have fragments of of from 2,600 years ago is is still alive active, that the, the narrative, the poetry, the history, the biographies and the letters have relevance for us today. And this, uh, this anthology of Scripture that we have uh, wrapped up in the Bible has, uh, has a work to, to fulfill in our own lives today. Now, for a few minutes this morning, I want us to go way back and just uh, look at some key dates uh, that have helped us to get the Scriptures to where we are today. And I want you to understand the cost that is involved in getting the Word of God in the Bible to us as it is today. In fact, it started out 14 or 1,500 years ago when God printed with His own hand the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets that He gave to Moses to carry, it, carry down from Mount Sinai to share His words with the people at the time. <clears throat> and then extending from that uh, uh, the five books of Moses, What's called the Pentateuch, which uh, the Gen- uh, Genesis and they said January there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the 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 Old Testament law that Jesus and his disciples would have memorized. You know these uh, these books were written on what they called scrolls, which were actually animal skins, and it would have sometimes taken uh, an in an entire herd of sheep uh, or cows to write. Uh, one Torah scroll. It would have been 150 feet long. And it would take this, this, this whole herd to create one Torah, one Torah scroll, but they were committed to writing it down uh, for the next generation. By, the, by, uh, by 500 BC, the 39 books of the Old Testament were decided on and completed. So around the time that Jesus was alive, you would have, they would have talked about the Old Testament prophecy and wisdom literature, as well as the narrative and the history that's in there too. And then at the, by the end of the first century, the 27 books and letters of the New Testament were completed and, and, and preserved in the, the Greek language on papyrus paper. A little bit later than that, there's this, there's this uh, church uh, council uh, called the Synod of Hippo, which was uh, the Catholic church council of the time in North Africa that met and decided upon— and uh, what's called canonized the 66 books of the entire Bible, and said, and, and from said from now on, these are what we would call the scriptures. Can you imagine the presence of God in that meeting, inspiring uh, those people in, a, in perhaps a time like no other, uh, as to which books were to be kept in and left out of the scriptures? And the the the, the word of God spread across the globe, but. There came a time in about, from about 600 A.D. that uh, began a long period of Bible suppression, where the Bible was suppressed by the church. It wasn't uh, made available to people. It was, it was held very tightly. It was only allowed in one language, and that was Latin, and it was only able to be read essentially by Latin speakers, which was mainly just the, the priests. Um, any other uh, languages were considered illegal by the Roman church. If anyone was found with a Bible in another language, they were executed on the spot. Being the kind of person that wanted to propagate and move the Scriptures around would cost you your life. The church had become very corrupt at this time. They, uh, over, during that period, uh, from sort of 400 to 1400, called the Dark Ages, was a time when the church would exert extreme control and people would have little control or little freedom. In fact, even to the point of being able to pay money to get people out of purgatory and into heaven, this this, uh, kind of made-up place that isn't in the Scriptures that so much of the church at the time believed in, Uh, you could pay somebody, it's called an indulgence, you could pay the priest to get your uh, uh, deceased relative removed from purgatory and into heaven. Something that they felt was really important was to get people removed from purgatory and into heaven. And so the priests would charge for this deceitful practice, to, to, or this this de- deceitful and non-existent thing, to take place to to continue to fund the church. So you're probably wondering, how did the church break free from this thousand-year period of of construction of of, um, of corruption? You know, during this time, there was this group uh, in Ireland, a secret Bible society in the 560s named the Kaldis. And the Kaldis were a group of monks who were committed to discipling one another in the ways of the Scriptures and, decided, uh, and being committed to continue writing down and rewriting down the Scriptures. And this, um, this practice lasted for hundreds of years. One of the, the, in a sense, the sons of this movement was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. And in 1380, he made the first translation of the Bible into the English language, the English, my people, of course. Um, that was, what he did was completely illegal. But all of a sudden, English-speaking, English-reading people could read the Scriptures. Uh, He was called a heretic by the church, and this work that would take him like a year just to transcribe, just to translate one Bible uh, into English, um, got him a, a, a stern rebuke from the Pope even after his death, in fact, 44 years after John Wycliffe's Death, the Pope was so disgusted by what had taken place by Wycliffe translating the Bible into English that was considered completely wrong at the time that the Pope ordered uh, the English uh, Church, the English Catholic Church at the time, to exhume Wycliffe's bones from the ground, dig them up, destroy them, and, and spread across the river. But Wycliffe was known as what was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Because he was laying uh, a platform for what would t- what would take place later, now Wycliffe had a uh, a, a protege or a disciple named uh, John Huss, who was from uh, Eastern Europe, and uh, Huss was also uh, called a heretic for what he did with the scriptures, and he was burned at the stake for his stance on the Bible. And what they used was they burned John Huss to death uh, what, 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 what John Huss's final words. Should I say, was as he was, as he was, the flames were licking around his feet. John Huss's final words were In the next hundred years, uh, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. Incredible that that was what John Huss's final words were as he was being executed. But his words became a prophetic voice into the future because about a hundred years later, God raised up this man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a German uh, uh, monk and priest who realized that there was so much wrong with the church. There was so many pieces of information, so many pieces of fake news that the church had been propagating that he wrote these 95 things down. They call them 95 theses. He wrote this stuff down and he wanted to get that information to the church. He just wanted to let it be known. You guys are uh, uh, off the, the mark here in so many areas. He nailed those 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg in, Ger- in northern Germany, just close to the Dutch border, and made it known that the church was completely off on so many things like indulgences and salvation by works. And, and, and it, that, that, uh, that change was known as the knock heard around the world when, when those theses were nailed to the Wittenberg church door. God used those accusations of heresy to change the world and Luther uh, employed Gutenberg's printing press to start to get the Bible out to people in the German language. Around the same time, there was an Oxford professor in, uh, in England named John Collet, and John Collet would also go down to St. Paul's Cathedral, who's a translator of the Scriptures into English, and he would go to St. Paul's Cathedral in English, in England, one of the, the, the most incredible cathedrals in England. It's where Princess Diana got married like 30 or 40 years ago, uh, but amazing place. And he would preach to what's now said to be about 20,000 people that would come into St. Paul's Cathedral cathedral just to hear the Word of God spoken in English. Did they neglect it or did they delight it? It delighted it. I believe the the English people back then delighted in God's Word. And that's at a time when the population of London was only 50,000 people, but 20,000 would come to St. Paul's Cathedral to hear God's Word spoken. You know, that church, sadly, today only reaches a couple of hundred people on their Sunday services. It's become irrelevant and it's it's my prayer that that we as a church will never become irrelevant to our culture but will always bring something that is relevant that is helpful that is useful to to people around 1526 a man by the name of william tyndale printed uh, actually printed the first english bibles at a time when anyone caught with an english bible could be executed immediately he was on the run for 11 years of his life, and eventually the authorities caught up with him. Uh, he was uh, Later in life, he was incarcerated for 500 days before he was strangled and burned at the stake. And Tyndale had a specific prayer when the flames were licking around his feet that day, and it was this. He prayed, God, will you open the eyes of the King of England? He knew that the King, King Henry VIII at the time, was the key to open to uh, to the to the movement of the scriptures across the Western world at the time, and God did exactly that, and even in the midst of his own uh, brokenness and uh, and of course you you know you know the history of Henry the Eighth and the beheading and the wives and the, the uh, assumption of the leadership role of the Church of England at the time, even with, all, with within all of that, King Henry the Eighth was the person who legalized the printing of the Bible in the English language, which meant that uh, a little time later under the leadership of, of King James, you, if you might, you might have heard of the King James version of the Bible, the KJV, a Bible that was authorized and used in English for hundreds of years. I want to pause for a moment and think, think of the cost that was involved in getting the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, On an app on your phone imagine the cost involved in getting the Word of God to us you know it didn't cost us anything to get the scriptures on our computers or on our phones or even on if you're if you're watching on our church online platform this morning you might even be able to see the Bible right next to you imagine the cost the truth is that isn't the same all over the world today we have an incredible privilege You know that the Bible, out of about 7,000 languages across the the globe today, the Bible is only fully translated in about 10% of those languages. But God makes a promise that His Word is going to go out and it's not going to return empty. In fact, in Isaiah, He says, My Word goes out from my mouth, and it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God is always going to use His Word to get his message across. I remember about uh, five or six years ago, in, even in a very small way, I, uh, I had that same sense that there was parts of our country here that didn't have a reverence for, for the Bible in in the way that other parts do. And in fact, I read this report by the Barna Group that uh, showed the most and the least Bible-minded cities in North America. And as you can see from this uh, uh, this image here that uh, the, the, the cities and the, the areas of the nation that are the least Bible-minded in our country are right here in the Northeast. Boston, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, Albany, New York. These these large metropolitan areas have been statistic, statistically proven to be the least Bible-minded cities in our nation. And it got me thinking, I want to be a part of of, of preaching God's word in in this part of the this part of the country i I, I want to encourage you you know if if you grew up here in New England or you moved here because of a military uh, responsibility or a job change or something I believe God has you here for a reason if you're a lover of the Bible God has you here for a reason to live in this part of the country to live with a mandate from God as 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 a as a follower of Jesus, as a student of His Word, and as somebody who believes in in the Bible and is committed to it. God has you here for a reason. Do we delight in it or do we neglect it? A decade or so, I I met two guys who explained to me that uh, God had given them a a vision and an idea for creating an app online where uh, people could interact with the Bible on on their cell phones or their smartphones or on their computers. And these two guys explained to to me and a few others that they were sitting at an airport gate one day getting ready to fly back to Oklahoma where they were coming from. They had this idea, what about an app where people could interact with the Bible online? By the time they had got through uh, the line to get on the plane, and had sat down in their seats and of course had to turn their phones off so that their little $200 phones didn't like blow up the $90 million plane. I don't know how that works. But as by the time they had got to that space, they had registered the domain name for uversion.com and bible.com. And and by the time they got to their Oklahoma City location they were flying to, um, they had written the code for this app called uversion on their laptops on the plane. Do you know that to date, the Bible app, which pretty much anybody who's got any interest whatsoever in the Bible has at some point downloaded on their phone, has had over 438 million downloads. Isn't that incredible? The amount of downloads that have been done to God's word. And guess what? None of those downloads in in so many different languages. In fact, I've got it here. That's it's it's in there's 2160 versions of the Bible. It's in 1475 supported languages, either part of the scriptures or the whole thing. And you know what? It's likely that nobody lost their lives to make that take place. You know, because our access to the scriptures is so easy. It's just it's just it's no wonder we lose our way sometimes. It's no wonder we forget the power of the Scriptures in our lives. And I don't care whether you're, you're 10 years old or whether you're 80. For any, any one of us that's listening to me talk this morning, you know that, that you and I have a tendency to neglect the most incredible gift that we have been given. Remember, David said it this way, Psalm 119. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word so I want to ask you this morning, what will your response be? What would happen if you and I, as followers of Jesus, took on a a different approach to the Scriptures? God, we will not neglect Your Word. While we're here on this earth, while You've put us here, we are going to not just revere God's Word as if it's some precious book sitting on on a coffee table, we're going to engage with it. We're going to commit to it. And it's my prayer that, that you and I will uh, take on a new approach to our commitment to the Scriptures and allow it to impact our lives.